Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks, if you can't count on yourself, who can you count on? I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and joining me this episode is data journalist Walt Hickey. Before Walt joins us, let me tell you about this episode's sponsors. During the crowdfunding campaign for this podcast's reboot, some folks pledged as episode sponsors. One of them has donated his slot to promoting refugee relief. Thank you, Philippe. I'll tell you more about refugee relief later in the episode, but for now, search on Google for Charity Navigator Syria for its top-rated recommendations for organizations. I'll have specific ones later in the episode. This episode is also brought to you in part by Disruptor-level patrons Philip Borenstein, Rob McNair-Huff, Brian Clark, Freddie Chi, and Patrick Ware. You can become a patron of the show on a one-time or recurring basis at newdisrupt.org support. You can get rewards like an exclusive enamel pin and being thanked, just like in this fashion. Now, let me welcome our guest, Walt Hickey. Hello, Walt. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Glenn. I'm really excited to chat with you. It is a delight to have you on. I've been following your work for years, and uh, we were talking before the podcast, and I really recently discovered that you are a young man. Yes. Um, I don't hold I don't hold it against you, but it's an exciting time I would think to be a data journalist because there's so much focus on this like rich it's it's Ed Tufty's dream definitely decades ago <laughs> is finally maturing. Everyone actually cares about the visual representation of data in effective and uh, clear manners that aren't chart junk. Is this a great time to be working in this field? It is, and, and like I've always kind of feared that there's going to be a moment where people like rush out and, and that it kind of like it's very flash in the panty. I mean, you have these different news styles and storytelling styles that pop and then evaporate. Um, but I think the nice thing about data journalism is that like the name itself truly means nothing. Um, it's just kind of a set of <laughs> skills that people are bringing to the table and people have kind of started to understand has value. Um, I've worked at a whole bunch of different places and, and I'm very friendly with a lot of the folks in the industry, whether through my newsletter or otherwise. And the, and the commonality is that it's much more of a mindset than I think people give them credit for. It's very much kind of writing, like when you write a story, typically what you would do in a traditional journalism path is you would uh, want to tell a story, you talk to the three people involved, the person who opposes it, who supports it, and, and then the independent analyst who can tell you about it a little bit. And then deep down in paragraph nine, you're going to publish the stat that you can find about backing up what one of those three people said. And all data journalism truly does is invert that process, that you find a cool stat, and then you take that stat to three people and find out how they react to it. And there are obviously very visual ways of doing this. There are very um, like reporting-based ways of doing this, that you can look at data sets with hundreds thousands, millions of, of, of values, or you can just kind of look at a very small set. But I think what it really boils down to is it's that mild inversion process that I think people realize really helps scale and really helps tell very cool stories. That's a fantastic way to describe that. I don't think I ever thought about it that that way. And we also have uh, better tools for doing analysis, right? Is that you yeah. don't have to teach yourself uh, Mathematica or these other apps you can use readily available online tools that are perfectly accurate that produce, you know, outcome or output that you can use to present in your articles. I know that Quartz developed like a whole JavaScript library, and there's yeah. Google charts and all this. So there are also libraries you can use to, to base this on. You don't have to build your own tools in-house, but it also feels like there's just unprecedented availability of uh, open source or free or at least affordable ways to do the kind of data crunching that you used to have to spend hours and hours programming specialized software to get the output of. Is that, do you think that's an accurate statement? Yeah, I think that's totally true. And like, again, not that Excel is the perfect system, but I think what a lot of people kind of realize is that like, 
in order to do data journalism, you don't always need to write a program. You don't always need to um, really, you don't really need to know how to code to do a lot of this material. I would say that a lot of the work that I do can be done in Excel because anything more sophisticated than that is too sophisticated for the audience that I'm trying to reach. (laughs) And so kind of realizing what you can, should, and need to do is a big part of it. And I would say like Google Drive making sheets like quality, because again, it hasn't always been quality. I think that Excel kind of realizing, oh, maybe we should put more than four seconds of thought into how we make charts in this thing. Um, I think that there's a lot of different ways that people have kind of like the, the, the floor has gone up when it comes to the software component of it. So it's made it a lot easier to keep the ladder down, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is one of the reasons I wanted you on the show is I'm fascinated by data journalism. I don't have a, a math background, but I do some analysis and things that I do. I can create charts and graphs that I believe are accurate. I have a full set of Tufties books, so so maybe hey. that's useful. <laughs> data journalism, that used to be something that was maybe a side function or not used. It wasn't a primary newsroom function, and it's become one. And so I think you're in a unique position where you're one of the best known names, I would argue, in the oh. data journalism field. I don't think that's false modesty, you can admit it. Uh, and, you know, you've, because you've written a lot about culture, you've crossed data yes. and culture, and that's created viral pieces that are firmly based in strong data. And having had uh, at least three staff jobs at this point, we've been at Business <laughs> Insider, you're at 538, and you're now at Insider as the senior editor for data. You also, about seven months ago, you launched a newsletter that has a premium and a freemium version called Numlock News. I'll put a link in the show notes. And so here's the crux of it is you're in the enviable position of having a staff job, mm-hmm. but you've got this incredible side project that allows you to express yourself in a different way that you can also be ultimately making some money off and your day job seems to be okay with it. So I'm hoping we could talk about a lot of different mechanics there because, you know, I often have people on who are visual artists or who make things, you know, physical things like, like books or uh, tripod adapters or shoes or things like that. I don't have a lot of people on, I think who make purely digital products that are mostly comprised of words and some images and visualizations. So, so let's unpick some of this. How did you get, let's start with this. How did you get into data journalism? What was the start of that part of your career? Yeah, absolutely. So we can go as far back as you like on this. I would say when you were five years old, you as you uh, as you narked on me earlier. I'm a young one. So <laughs> when I was in high school, that was really the the big story. Then was the Clinton Obama primary, and that I think is when you kind of started seeing data journalism move into the mainstream, specifically with this fellow Nate Silver, who I imagine is familiar familiar to a lot of your audience. If not, he's um, he's a he started out as a blogger who began to take some of the techniques used in sports analytics and in other probability functions and started applying them towards um, covering political races with the idea that a lot of the coverage of the Clinton-Obama primary was done by people with access rather than with people looking at the actual mechanics of what are going on the ground. And so his core conceit earliest on, um, the thing that really put him on the map was people are undervaluing the Obama campaign's ability to win and overvaluing Clinton's because all the reporters covering it are um, people who have been covering Hillary Clinton for the past six years in the Senate. He ended up being right, and he ended up predicting the states for the 2008 election, and I saw this happen, and I was just, like, taken aback. I thought it was incredible. I thought it was, like, I always had a knack for math, and so I was going to major in it in college, and I felt like, wow, this is such a good practical use that doesn't involve me becoming an actuary um, <laughs> because I'm from the New York City area and, and the, the cash-in that was always at the end of the tunnel with studying math was just go to Wall Street. And then 2008 happened, like I mentioned, I went to college um, and I began to kind of look for other ways to do that. And so I 
was a math major. I studied applied mathematics, concentration, probability, statistics. But as any math major will tell you, you need a hobby or else you go nuts. Uh, so I joined the student <laughs> newspaper. And I thought that was a very smart play to like counterbalance the right brain and the left brain and that kind of stuff. Little did I know that eventually it would, it would congeal into just the main thing. But um, yeah, I had a really good time. I enjoyed college a lot. I went to William & Mary. I had an internship my junior year of college that really hammered it home that this was a growing and viable field. And it was with these wonderful folks at the Center for Responsive Politics. They run mm. this site, Open Secrets. Do you know them? No, no, I've never heard of them. Oh, okay, no, no, Open oh, Secrets math. I know. Yeah, yes. yeah, okay. They, mm-hmm. So they track all the money in politics, and they've been doing that since the 80s. And so they're OG data journals in so many ways. They track every contribution, every fundraiser, every industry. They're the folks who, if you've ever seen a number pegged to a fundraising thing, it's from them. And I had the opportunity. I was just a data intern. I wasn't even a reporting intern for them. And that gave me the bug of, oh, this is a thing that I can do. This is a product I can, like, I have, a, I have a skill in this that is worth pursuing and taking a risk and not just immediately going to Wall Street. I inexplicably convinced my parents of this, and I ended up getting an, an, in, an internship at Business Insider, um, which at the time was, the, the, the journalism wing was essentially run by this guy, Joe Weisenthal. He's at Bloomberg now. He's got the 4 p.m. show. Oh, yeah. I worked there as an intern, worked my way. I covered the 2016 election as an intern, got hired on full time, thanks to uh, like some, you know, a lot of lobbying and friends like Joe and, and Julie Zevloff and, uh, and Kim Basine and those folks. And um, I ended up just kind of covering kind of the math beat, so to speak. Like when the lottery gets big, we'll talk about how uh, how the lottery impacts you. Like, Because that's a really good way to get to talk about probability with people who do not care about probability. Um, and just kind of, you know, fun, offbeat ways of like making cool maps and, and telling interesting stories and, and covering things that other people either didn't cover or didn't want to cover or didn't know that they could cover and that kind of stuff. And this got Nate Silver's eye, the fellow from earlier, and he ended up hiring me on as the culture and lifestyle or the lifestyle writer, which morphed into the culture writer at 538. This has got to be the greatest job. I have to ask you about this in a minute, but this has got to be one of the greatest yeah. jobs you could have is 538 is the most amazing thing because Sabermatics of all things has transformed. Yeah. So first it transforms sports and you can watch you can watch Moneyball to see the effect of that. Like that's an early pass at it, right? It totally changed baseball and then all professional sports basically because of this rigorous statistical analysis that does not match the intuition that people who have spent decades and decades uh, studying, coaching, uh, and recruiting players, it doesn't match their intuition. So that that's that. Nate Silver brings some of that over to politics and blows everyone away because no one had been performing. It's not like pollsters hadn't been performing it, but no one had done yeah. this overarching rigorous thing. And then you get to come in as 538 expands its focus. You're bringing that to culture. So you're looking about like, oh, I don't know, things about uh, uh, movie ratings. And um, mm-hmm. I, I wrote something actually based on something you wrote. I wrote a piece of about pre-rejection of gender-based websites for The Ringer, which is another sports-originating site that that keyed off one small part was off a thing you'd done about IMDb rankings. And it was because Mm -hmm. you had looked into this and I noted that um, I was talking in this article about how sites like uh, uh, Pinterest and Kim Kardashian's efforts, even though they're wildly successful, often supremely popular, they get discarded or put on the side or rejected by a number of people, often including uh, venture capitalists, because they're primarily women focused and uh this in ghostbusters you know the new ghostbusters reboot was Mm -hmm. an example of this you could look in the data to see that the people most likely to vote it most poorly were men and that women voted it in a much more fair and even basis so if you discarded all the men's votes you actually got a pretty good sense of how good the movie was uh but this cultural area was ripe for exploration i feel like you got to carve 
some space out there that hadn't been as fully explored before. And then yeah. I think while you're in that job, I think that also exploded too. And now we see it across uh, almost every kind of media site. Yeah, totally. I mean, so um, you've really hit the nail on the head. The thing is, I think that people do not pay enough attention to culture and lifestyle stuff just as a matter of fact. Like the idea is if you think about how much, like, first of all, in a functioning representative democracy, the top story should not be politics all the time. That's the entire point of electing representatives. And if you look at what people actually spend their time on, it's not obsessing about politics. It's not obsessing about the state of the economy. People spend more than two hours a day watching television. And the idea is that if that's not a bad thing, that's just how people want to, you know, use their, their God-given time on earth, so to speak. And I think that it's oftentimes disregarded as for, again, I think sexist reasons. I think that there's a lot of, like, I do not think that like certain areas, like you've mentioned, have been covered as adequately. Uh, you see it a lot in the women in Hollywood stuff, which I've some of my best work has been kind of on that. We've done a lot of just really, we, like we had kind of an opportunity because I think for a lot of reasons, whether it's kind of the, like, not to call newspaper editors jocks, but the idea is that they, they like news and sports, right? And so the that kind of um, relegation of cultural coverage to a lower tier, I think, has offered a ton of opportunity to do truly good work. And it's so kind of you to say that, like, I pioneered it, but you're right, I was on, like, that was my day job. But there's folks doing it these days who are incredible. Like, uh, my favorite people are at The Pudding. Um, they, they do, I think, some of the coolest stuff out there, Matt Daniel Shop. And, like, it's just, it's, it was just always such an opportunity that was there for the taking. And it was always a challenge. If you kind of think about, like, uh, if you want to write about sports, well, Pro Football Database has every game going back to the 1800s. Uh, if you want to talk about politics, well, we know where the polls are. If you want to talk about economics, well, the Fed has that. If you want to talk about science, science is a culture of publishing and, and talking about the data that they use to draw their conclusions. Uh, culture, good, good luck. And so a lot of it was <laughs> my favorite thing about it was that, like, while other while you could be the 538 politics desk and say, we, here are our two rivals specifically. With with culture, my favorite thing about it, and thing that I still love very much to this very day, is that it's not that you don't have rivals. It's that, it's that your rival is a college student with too much time on their hands who's going to make the greatest analysis <laughs> of friends that has ever been published. And the idea is that it's just such a good opportunity because since the data is so diffuse and you have to be so determined to get it, the stories that you were able to obtain from it are, by, are just so much more passionate and so much more labors of love and so much, like I, I believe, have intrinsic value um, compared to some of the other uh, more academic stuff. And so I'm just a huge fan of the field in general. Um, I'm delighted that I get to be a part of it. And I'm thrilled that I had like the platform for so long at 538 to do that. So, and we, we did some good stuff that I'm super proud of. You got to open the field for other people too. So this is the nice part is it's a growing field. And I think when, when you can show, when 538 can show that having a full-time cultural data journalist makes sense and that, I mean, I know as a journalist, you know, there's this, we have this incredible, uh, I felt this was a graphic designer too. We have this incredible combined uh, pressure against us. We have to produce stuff that is, has, uh, is integrity, it has integrity, is readable, uh, makes sense to write, has some kind of notability. And at the same time, we're in the modern world. So people have to be reading it. So if you write something that's fantastic and five people read it, not so great. 100,000 people, pretty great. Many millions, hey, that's great. You're a star. And, you know, you've <laughs> proven yourself like a Kickstarter campaign. You've proven yourself that this was an interesting idea you had. Uh, because, uh, you know, people actually found it so interesting and compelling, especially when you're dealing with the presentation of data or, you know, the long form, the rise of the long form story has been incredible because everyone's conventional wisdom was no one wanted to read 5,000 word or longer stories. And it turns out people will easily read 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 <laughs> word stories online if they're compelling. But then here, the virality is also, I'm sure, balances into this because like I remember, I didn't realize this was three years ago. Uh, uh, Walt has a great thing on his 
personal site. It's very smart. It's the the best stuff he's written, which is a great yes. thing. And I got I got to steal that idea. Everyone, please steal this idea from Walt. You're not Absolutely, doing already. Uh, and I forget <laughs> to update it. Occasionally I'll post like, here's the latest thing. But you did that story about how much cod uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson eats yes. every year. I remember I was like, wasn't that last year? Like, no, that was April 2015. And it was fantastic. And I read it everywhere. And Twitter was ablaze back in the great days of Twitter before politics it was ablaze with with uh, the rock cod, rock cod jokes. And it was just astonishing. And, you know, the rock he seems like such a decent guy. He's somebody you can make the jokes about. He tweeted it. Yeah. <laughs> he's a good, he's a good guy. He's got a good heart. And, and I mean, like the idea is that there's just so much opportunity here that like, I it's it, again, like when I hear the thing about data journalism that I truly love is that like, even if somebody's doing very similar work to you, um, same field, same topic, that kind of thing. I think that among at least the people who are in the game for a little bit of a while, they kind of realize that it's, that the competition is not internecine. It's not, me versus the guy at the post who does my beat versus the other. It's like, it's us versus the people who try to cover this field without, you know, kind of understanding what's actually going on using these kind of numbers and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's, it's like the unsophisticated analysis. It's not like there's a, like there was a terrific report that came out today about women in film. And I have done a lot of stuff on that and I'm not, rivaled by that i'm not i don't feel bad about that they emailed me saying hey we're coming out with this because there's a whole community of people who are fascinated by this topic and it's not that i'm against them or that their research makes mine look worse it's the fact that together our research is pushing back on the idea that is held in a lot of places in power in hollywood that women don't make money in movies and the idea is that there's a very that's the thing that i truly kind of like about the cultural field and i think it's because it attracts maybe a different kind of um, again, le- less jockey kind of fellow than uh, you'll see in some of the politics and sports desks. Nothing against the politics and sports reporters. I know they're all wonderful, wonderful people, honestly. But like, I just feel like it's a little bit, there's a little bit more bonhomie um, in it. And, and I think that that's one reason why. Well, data is this kind of independent uh, ideal thing, right? It lives in a platonic state. It's like math. And so you can all slice and dice the same data different ways or acquire different kinds of data. Yeah, we post it too. Like We all post the data for us, other folks to use. Like, And I think that that, that culture of collaboration is one that I, I do, you don't see a lot in journalism. Uh, is something that I kind of realized. Yeah, it's interesting. Imagine if all journalists posted their their raw research that wasn't, you know, pri- privileged, anonymous, whatever. We posted all of our transcripts and interviews, whatever. It would be amazing. And I think there are a few sites who have tried some radical transparency in which they post all the source yes. material. But I think that's, you know, it's it's fascinating to me always when I have access to something like, a, I don't know, like a 1,300-page report on the failings of the Catholic Church in, you know, several di- dioceses in uh in Pennsylvania, I dig into that and it's that kind of raw data, um, you know, and that's not data driven in the sense of, uh, of extracting numbers per se, but being able to look at primary sources and get a picture of what's going on instead of it being filtered down. So you're both providing a filter on it and your own unique view, but you're also providing that data for people who might want to take a different stab at it. Yeah. It's like, and this is totally off topic, but like sometimes I hang out with my business reporter friends and I'm just like, do you know how you guys, how lucky you guys are legally four times a year, your dude has to be honest and print. Like, <laughs> and, and, and like, if you had that in politics, like my God, what they could do with that. And, and so the idea is that there's all sorts of different advantages and disadvantages. But I think that the thing that I really truly enjoy about data journalism is that uh, particularly the cultural subset of it is that, you know, everybody's here for the right reasons. Like we can get more into what my current is now in a few minutes but like the idea is there's i'm not the only person running polls but um on cultural matters but the thing is i'm like quite good friends with the other people who do like and so i i'm very very happy with how um 
the, the data journalism field is not yet particularly ossified. Let's take a break so I can tell you about this episode's sponsor, which is Refugee Relief. That's thanks to the generous donation of an episode sponsorship by Philippe, a Kickstarter campaign backer who generously helped us bring this podcast back to life. If you're concerned, as I am, about tens of millions of people displaced from their homes, often from their countries, the largest level of refugees worldwide since World War II, you can help. While governments pour money in and dither and often make the problem worse, we as private citizens can contribute directly to aid groups that provide food, water, sanitation, shelter, and education. You can visit Charity Navigator, which evaluates the effectiveness and quality of charities, which is at charitynavigator.org, and search there for aid. And there's also a few organizations that are commonly recommended. These include the International Rescue Committee, rescue.org, which has been helping Syrian refugees find refuge in Europe after traversing a dangerous route from Turkey. There's Oxfam America at Oxfam America, O-X-F-A-M America.org. They're helping Syrians in their own country and they're helping in adjacent countries. Doctors Without Borders, which is doctorswithoutborders.org, has a limited presence in Syria, but it's working to aid refugees in countries nearby. Save the Children at savethechildren.org helps in a variety of ways inside Syria and in countries nearby with education, healthcare, and other assistance. And finally, Mercy Corps, which is Mercy Corps, M-E-R-C-Y-C-O-R-P-S dot O-R-G, which is helping to provide basic needs within Syria. That includes sanitation, clean water, emergency food, shelters. These charities together can make a difference. And with your support, you can help them do important work for people who have lost sometimes everything and are trying to find their way home or to a stable new life. Thanks again to Philippe for donating his sponsorship in the name of Refugee Relief. And now back to the podcast. I also dig that uh, you're coming at it from a, a math background and not a journalism background. And there's nothing, again, wrong with journalism schools. Yeah, sure. You know, I know so many journalists, especially in technology, who come from a different angle. And, you know, I have a degree in art. I study graphic design, which is why I'm a journalist today. And you're now, again, in an ideal time when there are many people being employed at this, at many publications online and you know, in the print world. Yeah, I was like, I was talking to a friend of mine about this one time, which was like, I think that we were both very drunk. But I think that what we hit up on was the idea that there's a lot of people who see the very obvious links between the sciences and like it's STEM, like science, technology, engineering, math. But I think that there's a lot more, like the, it's not talked about anywhere near enough, but I think that there's a ton of connection to, again, between math or at least like the kind of math that you'll see in college curriculum, um, but with the proofs and what have you, and how argument works and diction and rhetoric and, and, and writing work. In a lot of ways, you kind of, you whenever you want to write a persuasive piece or find out a piece of journalism, what you're trying to do is gather enough evidence that you want to make a fun point and you want to make sure that your evidence all flows and, and doesn't have any inconsistencies in it. And, and you were able to ascertain the story through a number of different sources. And I think that those values are quite identical to what you'll see in a lot of, whether mathematical proofs or that kind of stuff, where, no, you want to have different ways of verifying information. You want to have different ways to derive stuff and be sometimes being a little bit unintuitive with how you attack it has some keen structural advantages. And so like, I, I'm just trying to say that like, there's a, it's very obvious with a connection between stuff like um, writing and history is or writing and, um, and, you know, like the other artistic pursuits. And there's a lot of obvious connections between math and a lot of other scientific pursuits. But I would argue that particularly with math and less so in the other sciences, but particularly with math, you'll see a lot of um, technique and like 
similarities between the way that you want to attack problems with how journalists try to investigate problems. Mm-hmm. You know? That's a great explanation of that. I don't think I understood that before. I mean, I think that's a thing that's happening a bit in physics is I think physics has become so mm-hmm. difficult to explain even to one's colleagues. A lot of physicists have become great communicators because the person sitting next to them may be working on something so different that they have to spend a lot of time, you know, a combination of math and analogy. So even to explain their own work to people in their field takes so much effort and then they can explain it to the public actually in a way that's explicable as well. And that certainly wasn't true in physics of, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so let's dig into this thing that you're doing, which I think is, is, is the core of where I think you have a unique place in the, in the, uh, in the world. And you and I both, I would say, worship at the altar of Ben Thompson, who is, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Ben Thompson uh, has a newsletter called Stratechery. He's been doing it full-time he started it in 2013. He's been doing it full-time since 2014. And it's basically a reader-supported newsletter in which he produces, uh, I think it's one weekly uh, column that's free. And then uh, daily, he writes uh, stuff that's only for subscribers. The fee is very low. It's, I think, still only $100 a year to subscribe. And yeah. um, it's an amazing uh, amount of detail about the uh, largely about the computer mobile industry. He has a huge amount of background and specialty. Uh, he lives in Taiwan and has great insight that I think a lot of people writing in English in America do not about it. And he carved out this tremendous area and has, you know, at this point, I don't know the last time he disclosed subscribers, but he had, you know, well over a thousand subscribers a few years ago. And so this is a very nice living for somebody who's an analyst and has other ways he makes a living as well. Um, And so he's the model because he had unique information that's valuable to people who invest in the field, who work in the field and who write about the field. And then there's like the information, Jessica Alessin's site is the other model, which is now she's been able to hire multiple journalists. She hired someone away from the New York Times recently to work full-time, Nick Wingfield, uh, for her. And that, again, is a subscriber supporter. I think they're $500 a year, and it's highly focused, uh, incredible scoops, incredible sourcing, relatively small staff, and they are you know, making – and they do conferences and some other things as well. But it's, it's, a, it's at its core. It is a news publication, but the core fact is they have valuable information you can't easily get – Elsewhere in the same form or as timely, it has high utility to people and they can charge accordingly so they don't have to have advertising or all these other models. So with that in mind, I want to talk about, you know, how did you conceive of with, I mean, we, you know, we both know those two models pretty well. We're both nodding at each other's mm-hmm. things, but so num- <laughs> Numlock News, this yes. seemed to come in a, a break for you. Like, you know, you left 538 and how did this arise as like, well, this is the right direction for me to take right now. Yeah. So I had been, so in the beginning of 538, we had an issue, which is the stuff that we do takes a lot of time where you don't really have a two hour take a lot of the time when it comes to covering news. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, just through, through a lot of those systemic things, we had this problem where we oftentimes were launching a website without anything new in the morning. And so I signed on to write a daily morning newsletter, um, bubbling out numbers in the news. And I did that for hundreds and hundreds of issues. And I, there was a kind of a daily thing that I did. Um, it was an opportunity because again, having come from Business Insider, which was a bit bloggier, um, it was an opportunity to kind of invest in voice, which I felt like at the time, we were still struggling to place on the broader 538, but it was an opportunity for me to really go in and have a, a fun, compelling voice. And essentially, I'd just been doing that. Like, that was a daily thing that I did um, for for years. And so essentially, 538 ended up, um, they were under ESPN for my entire time there. And there was a decision to sell, um, just because, again, ESPN has problems that are best solved without um, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, a... 
like so it was like totally amicable in every way but there was a certain point where espn has problems to confront that is probably um a niche lovely um like uh, prestige blog is not the solution to it so the they basically orchestrated a sale and they ended up selling to abc news and so that was just kind of like listen four and a half years is a great amount of time to spend somewhere and they wanted to invest a lot more in the politics coverage and since they had the ESPN connection the sports coverage but really again if there's an issue out there these days that people follow quite uh, closely you're looking at a lot of politics stuff and so um I kind of you know it's time to go <laughs> um, and so but the, the key thing that I kind of realized was like I had uh, an opportunity um to you know hop into another job but I decided not to do that because I kind of realized that there wasn't a lot of value being placed on the newsletter that I was doing every day, um, which is not a knock on anyone. Um, but it's mainly just like, I felt like there was such an opportunity there. The idea is, and I'll give you numbers. Like I had like hundreds of thousands of readers reading the significant digits that we had accumulated and built over the course of yeah. like, like three years. I, and the thing that really kind of pushed me into it was that the open rate when I was doing it was 50%, which is, orders of magnitude higher than what you typically expect from any of these media newsletters. So the, the thing that I kind of really got a strong sense of was that since email is a weird medium where it's very passive, you don't get those active reader engagement figures. But if you're getting half of the people on your email list to open your email, you're doing something quite right. And so I decided to, like I had saved up a little bit of money at that point because I kind of felt like I, I, see, I saw that 538 was getting ready for a sale and you always want to make sure that you have a little fun. <laughs> yes, that's very good. Hey, you're a millennial. You're, millennials aren't supposed to have that kind of ability or foresight. It's all invested in yes. avocado toast or doom. So Yep. So, but no, I mean, like I spent the first couple months of the year making sure that I had five grand in case I needed, in case uh, it was time to break the glass. Um, but, and basically, so I just saved a little bit of money to make sure that I had the uh, stretch of runway for it. And I started NumLock, which was uh, kind of, a continuation in many ways, but kind of a, I wanted to revisit what made that column that I had been writing so interesting, which I think was like the context of the stuff. The, the idea that I was telling you earlier that so much of traditional journalism is talking to three people and then finding out the thing and then burying <laughs> that thing nine paragraphs down. So much of what I kind of do is, is, is like now I'm very much trained just to look for paragraph nine where the number is, where you see your first percentage sign or your first dollar sign or that kind of stuff so that you can actually get down to brass tacks. And then uh, contextualize and go into all that kind of thing. And so the idea is that it, it, every morning it's like seven or a little bit more news stories. And they're told in a fun, voicey way. Uh, I think that that is so much of what is up with data journalism and the difference between uh, like a robust, well-read data journalist and, and an academic paper is, is so much how you talk about these things. And you have to talk to people as people who are smart and who want to learn, but maybe don't know everything that you know about linear regression, you know? And so... Um, I like, talked to 538 about it and they let me put a promotion for it in uh, the newsletter that I had been writing, which is super kind of them. And just, uh, again, we had spent four really good years together and I was very, very happy with uh, my time there. And, and again, I still have a lot of love for all the folks there and see them on a rather regular basis. Yeah. That's fantastic that they let you, uh, that they let you before you left, because boy, does that make a difference not having to, uh, to start at zero? Yeah. I, I was very worried about starting from scratch all over again, but they were, again, they were kind enough to kind of, like I realized that there's a lot of audience there for 538. There was a lot of audience there for um, the politics component of it, but I felt like there was an audience there for me uh, that I had built that it was interested in the voice that I was bringing to it. 
And so uh, the event worked um, and uh, I had lots of folks come with me and again, not the full list by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell numbers. I had 21,000 people come with me, which vastly beat my expectations oh, that's fantastic. in a very, very big way. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so again, it's, it's a free daily newsletter and the plan was always get it going, get the product where I want it, get what it looks like where I want it. And then look into monetization specifically, either some combinations of advertisements or um, paid subscribers. I really wanted the paid subscribers just because I was kind of realizing that the advertiser model is hard and inconsistent, very feast famine. I had talked to enough creators over the course of years to figure it out. And like, I, I know enough people who make podcasts essentially <laughs> to um, realize how that goes. And then um, I had two friends, um, Ivan Hernandez and Red Scott, who do this podcast, Boars, Gore, and Swords. Been longtime <laughs> friends with those fellows. Yeah. And um, they're good people. And um, they do a Patreon. And I was kind of hitting them up being like, how's organizing this? And, and they were very much like, you know what? This is, it's a very, it's a much better way than trying to shut the shill out ads. And so um, very much, uh, I mean, we can uh, take a pause at that point, but like in general, I kind of realized that the monetization was much better in having this audience that was loyal and enjoyed reading me and all that kind of thing than um, attempting to transition from journalist to mattress seller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the big thing, right? And eventually the mattresses, people stop buying mattresses at some point. There must be a mattress event horizon, which I expect you will write about at some point, where all <laughs> mattresses that could possibly, you know, all mattresses, Audible subscriptions, Squarespace sites, and uh, I don't know what else, um, you know, underwear has been sold to people who are likely to sell it and the yield goes down. And somehow that point has not yet been reached because these direct response ads uh, continue to appear and uh, and sometimes for many, many years in the same podcast. I would love, there's so little good data <laughs> in the podcast world and I would love to see yes. more data on that because it's kept strictly proprietary because there's too many benefits from knowing what's going on to one's competitors. But yeah, advertising is a, is a mugs game because it's always going to go down over time. You spend a disproportionate mm-hmm. amount of your time on it and the reward is very low compared to direct response if you can get it. You got to ask yourself what the money's for. And the money is so that I can use the authority and the trust that I built up with my audience. Again, if you need to do an ad break anytime soon, I will stop talking about this. That's <laughs> the the irony. Yeah, we'll be we'll be right back. Uh, this episode it will be is being sponsored by uh, by Refugee Relief. So I mean, seriously, we're we're going to uh, I'm going to be telling people about how they can donate to refugees through a kind sponsor Please who helped brought yes. the podcast back. So so you're good. Yeah, like if you were immediately going to start advertising <laughs> one of those reptile dysfunction pills, I would have maybe put a tamper oh, on it. But um, no, I mean like. At the end of the day, like what, what the proposition that they're making is that people are more willing to listen to an advertisement if it's told in the voice of someone that they trust, which is undergirded. This is not the first industry that has been that has used this information, right? Like everything from direct selling to multi-level marketing has been predicated on the idea that people are more likely to act on a purchase if it is from somebody that they trust. And I just kind of felt like, listen. I don't need the money that much. Um, the advertising could be a lot of work, but I mean, the in the, the benefits are, are myriad. But the idea is like, my bet is that I can get enough people to subscribe where it's worth my time to do it, um, like to pay for it. Because at the end of the day, there's people who read my newsletter who are who are fortunate and who are willing to spread that love. There are people who believe in the NPR model, where if you pay a little bit every month, you can make sure that a thing that you enjoy can stay and can stay ad free and that kind of stuff. And then there's people who um, if I rolled out a premium option, I added an extra Sunday edition where you go deeper. They just want to read that. And, and so the idea is like uh, I launched with Substack and we'll get into them in a second because I think mm-hmm. they're, they're fascinating. Um, I launched with Substack the payment the premium option. And, you know, I got a lot of folks subscribing. It's um, it's not like a full time 
kind of subscriber life. But I mean, there's a core group of people who enjoy the work and it's a super good validation that I'm doing good stuff. And I really, really um, love them for it because it gives you me like, I don't need to, to sell mini refrigerators or, or boxes that are out to you and all that kind of stuff. I can just really focus on the audience, you know? Well, and this is the, I think the key lesson for all, I guess a uh, like direct supported patronage model things is that it's very hard to build an audience, but it's very easy once you have an audience to ask them to help you continue to produce the things you make. And I, I think that's the key question mm-hmm. I get all the time from people is like, how do I build an audience? And I'm like, God, you know, that, that part I don't have an answer to, you know, I have a, I have a personal mailing list on my site. I started way too late and I think I I have 175 people on it because I hit the inflection point wrong. You know, at one point, a number of years ago, I had thousands of people coming to my personal blog every day because blogging was the primary modality. When it shifted to social networking, I did not shift with it and say, you know, A, Mm. it's harder to do calls to action or anything in social networks to begin with. But I also, had I started a list 15 years ago, I would have, you know, 15,000 people on it. And instead I'm building it from scratch. And I think I know a a number of people like me who had had various kinds of blogs. I mean, I have my Wi-Fi networking blog and also personal blog and, and other things who we feel a little left behind because we did not see exactly how hard it would be to reach an audience we had. So the people who read us are still there and I have, it's a harder and harder to find them and reach them. And so every tool at my disposal now, when I do new projects is trying to find them. So having, I think yeah. you the best thing and also at a supportive previous employer is because that project was discontinued, they were also willing to let it not disappear entirely. And then they gave you your audience. They were able to let you have that audience voluntarily for the people who wanted to opt in and Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like you suddenly 20,000 people were interested overnight. It's like, no, these are people you built up over time. They wanted to stick with you. And then those are the folks who are going to be your most ardent supporters and you grow from there. Yeah. It's so much like you hate the advice to be just work hard when we get there. But the idea is like, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a sufficient or necessary. It's not sufficient to get there, but it's, it's necessary to get there. And the idea is like, I spent three years with these folks. I was one of the first things that they read every day. There's a reason that um, people enjoy that. There's a reason that if you look at the television market while primetime is cratering when it comes to, to, advertising and sponsorship rates morning shows are are, are still robust mm-hmm. still fantastic and because the idea is that, you know people like to start their day the same way they like consistency and the idea is that if you can offer them um something pleasant and enjoyable or even just interesting that kind of stuff to help them get started that is a good market to be in so essentially it was just like uh, it was a good risk it was a risk to take but i'm very happy i took it and i'm very happy that um opportunities conspired to make it possible well you also have two excellent attributes i want to i want to highlight um both you know well actually there's multiple so i won't even i'm not going to enumerate them there's inappropriate for me to enumerate them in this context uh, is that one you know so you had an audience that knew you you developed a reputation in the field so people knew you by name you had a good buy line that people saw associated with a, a popular and well-respected site, then you start with a, a robust footing with number of people. But I think the, the there's two other aspects. Every day, there are a bazillion numeric stories. There are stories that you are able to call through as you did for three years. So you knew there was an infinite supply of these that would be, mm-hmm. that would rise to the top. You'd be able to skim the cream off and be able to say, these are interesting stories. And then know that on your premium version of the newsletter, that there's more depth you can go into. You can talk to people who wrote the stories. You can look into the data more. You know there's more depth to probe. So that's one thing that's very difficult. The second is you had already proven that an audience existed for this 
topic. And I would say that's something, again, people ask me about all the time and being able to create some kind of a Patreon campaign, a supported newsletter, um, any kind of ongoing project. Are there enough people interested in subject X? And it's often yes, but it's hard to find them. In the data world, we know that people are reading data journalism. You know people are reading you. You knew people specifically were reading this newsletter. And it seems like that to me, it was a, a, was a great focal point where you were able to launch this into. You did on a lot of really cool stuff there. The idea is like, on that second point, yes, I highly advise that um, your listeners seize the means of production as soon as possible. <laughs> it is awesome. Um, on, the, on the first point, though, like a lot of it comes down to what you consume. And I feel very much that um, just as like what diet you are, what you eat, it's the same way with media. And that if you kind of only follow, I'm not even talking about like right or left. I'm talking about everything. I'm saying like, you should give esports a try. Cause you just need to kind of figure out what's going on in that kind of part of the world. If, if a lot of people are passionate about something, you should give it a whirl. I looked down at the bachelor and the bachelorette for years. And then I did a project about the bachelorette and I'm obsessed. And the <laughs> idea is that you, if you kind of go into it with a yes and kind of energy, then and you understand what makes people sympathetic to stuff. Um, you can really broaden the horizons and with with this project in particular, like it's not, I don't read the same news sources every day. I think that part of that is when I was at Insider, I covered everything from politics to military and defense to general stuff. I'm a big sports fan, just kind of having a very broad appetite and more importantly, not following brands, but following people. It was great. I mean, the idea is I have a lot of fun doing it. It's very much, I just enjoy reading this kind of stuff and, and I like to bring it into the world. Um, and so I think it's a great way to, especially to highlight work being done by outstanding people. This brings us to a, I think there's another inflection point here too, which is that the tools that exist to let you, that like let you facilitate uh, what you're trying to do. In this case, one of those things is to collect money. I mean, MailChimp is like, you know, MailChimp yeah. has eaten the entire world when it comes to to uh, mail, uh, like inexpensive and free delivery of, of mail in a uh, manner that respects the people subscribing, mm -hmm. respects your mailbox. So MailChimp is like a solved problem for most people. And I use Squarespace to host. They're not sponsoring this podcast, neither is MailChimp, because Squarespace for me does everything I need to in a fashion that is non-irritating. It's a solved problem, I know. Yeah. But paid newsletters, there's still a lot of technology out there to figure out like how do you collect money there are plugins that you can use with mailchimp there are other solutions and i think for a number mm -hmm. of people you know patreon has been the solution for some people because patreon lets you email directly to different they've, they've added uh, much more sophistication in the last year too so you can target people subscribing at different levels like you used to be able to or you can on kickstarter for sending updates so you can use patreon as a kind of newsletter uh supported thing but not everybody wants to opt into a specific Patreon, a patron model as yes. opposed to subscribing to a newsletter. It's a different kind of relationship. And I'm looking at your, totally. your provider, Substack. I want you to tell me about them because I'm I'm scrolling through this and I'm like, oh my God, I know all these people, the people that they are. You do, you know, yes. It's like Bill Bishop, Jamel Bowie, uh, uh, Daniel Ortberg, mm -hmm. Nicole Cliff, uh, uh, Judd Legum, all the, you know, Walt Hickey. Yeah. Walt Hickey's on that page, right? Mara Wilson. Like mm -hmm. I know all these people. So I'm like, they are obviously doing something right to attract some of the most uh, creative, independent Folks, so what is Substack doing? Again, they do not underwrite or pay for this episode. Just to be clear, they do not. No, I pay them. So, like, like so, Substack. I so I was um, I started I took started the Numlock on Mailchimp because whenever you're about to bet your entire career on starting an email list, you want to make sure it goddamn works. <laughs> um, so I, I went on Mailchimp first, and then I did a lot of market research looking at. Um, what to do for the paid thing. And I was deciding between Patreon, which takes 10% um, just to handle their fees and whatnot, and 
essentially they're 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 great and the thing is they're trying to recruit more journalists and reporters and i think that, that they've supported a lot of my friends I'll, I'll highlight one thing too patreon's biggest problem is they accept very low donations each month so if you get a buck from patreon uh if someone donates a buck you only get i think 60 cents from it because of the per transaction fee mm-hmm. so they so if you're getting ten dollars a month you're getting more like uh 10% off that right you get nine bucks but if you're getting one dollar a month and a lot of back people have a lot of one dollar backers it can be a huge hit if you're getting 40 percent taken out for uh the all the fees yeah. so that's that's an issue transaction fees all mm-hmm. that well so um basically when i was just kind of uh, kind of hanging out with folks and talking about it i i know judd from the internet judd like and he was his plan was he was like and he told me this before he he like pulled the trigger on it but his plan was to leave um, think progress, which he founded and start his own newsletter. And he's done that since it's called popular information. It's popular.info. I know he's doing fantastic, uh, with it now because he's doing kind of the opposite of me. I'm doing very, it's five days a week free and one day a week bonus because I'm kind of low and slow. Um, he's making this career. And so he's, uh, got one free per week. He's got, um, I believe five or more, something like that, um, paid for every week. And you've seen his work. He's mm-hmm. the guy who, uh, first highlighted, um, companies that were supporting uh, the Mississippi Senate candidate who um, said that arguably racist stuff. And he, he, he's a, he's getting stuff done. You know, he's a good guy. And so anyway, I hung out with him in DC um, over a cup of coffee and he was like, you should, you should check out this thing called Substack. And they were a very young company. They must've been six months old at that point. Bill Bishop was their first big client, the cynicism newsletter. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of, they were in an acquisition period trying to get more talent on the site. And so they were kind of perfect for me. I hung out with them a bunch and I realized that we were ideologically simpatico in the sense that they also believed that social media was not a way to sustain an audience. It was a way to enjoy one briefly. When you really kind of get down to it, I, I was a big fan of their stuff. And, and so they work. And the thing that I like them a lot is like, for instance, I have a, uh, I have, you know, an agent for books and whatnot. And, and I like how having somebody who their provision is that they take 10, 15% they're on your team. And so with Substack, like they just get a percentage of it and then there's it's handled through Stripe and they handled all the membership problems and all the billing issues. And I ha- I like it because I have their tech support. I'm sending the newsletter through mm-hmm. them. And so they have the, and so that's a huge asset compared to Patreon where I was paying them, rather um, compared to MailChimp where I was paying them 200 a month just to send it. And it was going out on the same uh, email as, as advertisements and that kind of stuff. So I was very happy with them and I've had a terrific time with them since I've been a, uh, a recruiter of sorts with them. I've like, I'm, I'm the first guy to tell friends of mine, like, nope, they're, they're a good bona fide source and that kind of thing. Yeah. They're, they're a very, very cool company. They're, they're quite young, but I mean, if you can look at the, that murderers or talent that they have already, again, just all independent, that kind of thing. Um, they're, they're doing quite cool stuff. This is great to know because I think uh, the expansion of tools is great for competition. You know, uh, and like I say, Mailchimp may be the the leader there, but um, I don't think monetization is key in the way for Mailchimp that it is for Substack. Mailchimp is a well, Mailchimp is a, is an advertising yeah. company. They're, they 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 basically what Mailchimp's core business is, uh, as I understand it, because again, you learn a whole lot about email that you don't <laughs> want to know when you start email. Um, is that essentially? Um, spam filters work by ad- by identifying IP addresses that originate yeah, spam. Yeah. And all MailChimp does for money is that they maintain server racks that are not blacklisted. And as a result, they like 
that's how, if you've ever received um, a campaign ad um, from, um, I don't know if you shot that JCPenney, that came from MailChimp because they have whitelisted servers and that kind of stuff. And so they maintain those server racks that make it possible. To, like I, if I wanted to, I could send my email as I understand it from my Raspberry Pi. Uh, I do not because that would look sketchy as all hell. <laughs> and so um, what, the, what, what Substack and does, they kind of replicate that service from a thing called MailChimp. And MailChimp's not hurting for my money because they're mainly taking checks from advertisers and that kind of stuff, which is fine. That's what the, that's what the, right. And MailChimp's yeah. handling like, I don't even remember what the number of billions of email messages they send every year. And they're, they're a super <sighs> white hat kind of company. And I have nothing, I've only good things to say. I have nothing bad to say about them. Let me say, let me oh, say yeah. more affirmatively. I have only good things to say about MailChimp and they've also helped foster a lot of uh, independent projects that have, uh, that have benefited the internet by them underwriting it. Yeah. So this is this new model is you can get plugins, you get services that work, you know, through MailChimp. And there's this like Trinity now of, uh, I mean, it's not a Trinity, but it's like Squarespace, MailChimp and Stripe. And I think Squarespace is now, um, not that it's on the outs, but now like MailChimp, you know, you could use Stripe and MailChimp with a third party service that integrates them. But Stripe is kind of like that golden child of providing all the payment frictionless mm-hmm. material we need the, the lubrication on the friction on the on the uh, accepting money part they're selling they're, they're the folks selling pitchforks and gold rush and i'm That's delighted great. to pay them 35 cents yeah. every time someone they're, and they're you know and stripe has been amazing we're working with their systems for years uh but because you have various kinds of lubrication in the e-commerce in the uh and the online accepting of money worlds that allows something like substack to form so substack doesn't have to solve a lot of problems they have to solve one kind of problem and they can solve it very well and that's i think a great thing and you know the networking effects of it have been really terrific because like i said like uh judd and i have been talking through the process together of just like here's what what here's what i here's what happened to me when this happened and, and like i just uh, there's this there's this guy aaron gordon who if if any of your listeners are in new york city should subscribe immediately to his newsletter um which is called signal problems and it's basically just going deep on the subway oh and what's God, wrong with wow. the MTA and what's going and it's just such a sophisticated because the idea is that with transit the issue is that you have these huge behemoth, behemoths who outlast the metro desk reporters who are covering them, and so his his conceit is that he's going there to to read uh, to go deep on what's wrong with the MTA, what's up with this bureaucracy that's existed, how does it exist, why are the problems what they are, and he's found a good niche for it. He just went, uh, he had a paid tier last week, and so um, there's kind of shared wealth of knowledge between folks like my friend Allison Griswold. Um, she's a courts writer day by day, but she's got a newsletter. Um, called oversharing all about the sharing economy. My other friend, Alex Kaufman, I pushed him to sign on to this. The idea is that writers are always looking out for ways to have that, have a way to have a direct conduit to their audience that's not contingent on having that full-time job still because it's too fickle out there for that. And so um, I found that Substack is both a terrific community of writers, but also like, hey, that's a good business. The thing is I'm delighted to pay them a percentage just because they make it a little bit easier on that front. And you're not engaged in this quite yet. And and as I said, you've got a full-time job at Insider, which is great. And you're doing, you're doing work that's parallel to what the newsletter is. I mean, you're still working in data journalism. So this is obviously a side project for you, but it's a side project that's significant. Mm -hmm. And who knows, you know, again, you're a young man, who knows what the future brings, but as another journalist, like this is the only way that I own a house within this kind of thing. I I mean that honestly, like, I have two, like, uh, I live in New York City. I have, uh, like, I have student loans still that I'm working on. The idea is that it's going to offer uh, a financial floor that, honestly, like, long term is very important. That's, that's a fantastic way to look at it. And it's, I mean, I think this is the whole aspect that I try to explore in the show a bit, too, is that it does not have to be your full time living, but it's a way you have a, this is a no. creative expression for you. It's work, but it's your creative expression. It's the area you're interested in. You got to share it with people who, who value it and are willing, some percentage of which have the means and interest to pay for it. And all of these, 
mechanisms now let you pull it together in a way that was previously effectively impossible. I mean, look, I had a tip jar on my site in 1999 or whatever it was. I, I tried, oh gosh, you know, yeah. I tried cyber cash and cyber this and cyber that in the day I've made more small amounts of money from different aggregating micropayment tip jar systems over the years. And it's not until you could just take credit cards with someone clicking on a Stripe link that I felt it all came together at long last. And it's kind of funny because it's not, it's Stripe isn't doing anything unique, except that they're not a hassle. And then they're also the fact their API was from the very beginning, they were aimed at programmers. I feel like Stripe opened up this world to make all these other services possible because nobody else wanted to offer that service in an API fashion that was reliable and consistent and, and has remained true to itself. I love it because the idea, like, I don't have to know what an ACH check is to get money every month. And the, and believe me, I, I spent, a day, I'm a smart fella, but I looked at how to, what a goddamn ACH check was and how to get one for two days and I couldn't crack it. Like, yeah. And at the end of the day, that's what that's what that's there, that's what that's yeah. there for. And so, to get back to your like broader point, though, it's like like how how the hell did newspapers see the entire subscription game? It, it's it's it bewilders yeah. me, and I think that it must have been like. I mean, if you're running a business and you're running it, not naively, but just for the medium term, and you see one group's numbers are going down, 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 and one group's numbers are going up, up, up. Um, and, and if those, are, if the down, down, down numbers are subscription sales, and if the up, up, up numbers are social, of course you're going to bet the farm on social. And of course you're going to lay off that subscription team. And of course you're going to try to find ways to make that up, up, up team make more money than the down, down, down team. And I think that in doing so, they've absolutely seeded the, the core business model of journalism, which is like people need information and willing to pay for it god damn it maybe not all of them but enough of them yeah you just need a yield though if you have a hundred thousand readers and two percent pay that can be great in the right place sometimes sometimes Absolutely. you need 20 percent, but you know and sometimes for your project with you know 20 something thousand subscribers i'm not sure what it is now but you know if you got a my, yeah. my suspicion I, like my in my brain i'm like well if you got five percent of the people paying at five dollars a month or was it fifty dollars a year mm-hmm. like that's a substantial amount of money and you hope it grows over time it is yeah and it, and it shows up next year. Yeah, it shows up next year, which is which is wonderful. The idea is that if you have like in in advertising, you have lean years and then you have feast years. And with this, I mean, like I'm going to I, I'm going to lose paid subscribers as these things come up. I know I've quit enough subscriptions to know that. But at the end of the day, like it's recurring to the point that you have that level of stability and predictability that is just so rare. And I just do not know why anybody would see this model to um, chasing Facebook to try to get traffic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. years ago, uh, people started to say, and I, I don't want to even know which people it was anymore. Like there was this uh, conventional wisdom that was being written about by internet pundits and, and tech wizards and, and companies with horses in the race saying that email is eventually going to fade away. And the important thing, and this isn't like a Slack versus email thing, because that's oh, a different yeah. that's a different argument. Uh, but it's like email is going to fade oh. away and in social media of various forms, maybe it won't all be Facebook and Twitter, will take over. And really, you're going to be doing all your advertising, all your interaction with the people interested in your work in those two areas. And instead, of course, email remained consistent and strong. The people who stuck with it all these years built large lists, the tools being so much easier, make all of these things more sustainable and supportable. And uh, and I just want to say email one, you know, email, we're seeing the, you're seeing how Twitter is kind of imploding. We see Facebook had inflated video numbers. We're seeing all this stuff going on. Email is, you know, stands alone, like the uh, the cheese or something, I think. Well, so the thing that I truly love about it is like, so we can talk about the instability in the media market uh, on, at the um, site level, like Mike shutting down, canning all its union workers and then popping yeah. up a new shop on yeah. the hustle, which is, which that, you know what, listen, this media, media business like is, is like just behind like restaurants when it comes to the willingness of management to screw <laughs> yeah, exactly. over their labor. Do not get me wrong. I've had, I've had, 
I've had the luxury of working for outstanding people, um, both at Insider and at 538. I've always been well taken care of. I always love my bosses. I always love management. But this industry has a lot of people who are just breezing on through uh, on their way to um, becoming the son-in-law of the president and who are willing to do whatever it takes. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Who uh, you have a lot of very ca- – Oh, my God. Jared Kushner as the yeah, observer. But the idea is like – but the idea is that you have a lot of tourists in this business. You have a lot of dumb money in this business. And the idea is that you can't always count on your the individual platforms to succeed. But what you super can't count on is the the Facebooks and the social medias of the world. I'm, I don't create adult content, but Tumblr just annihilated the livelihoods of hundreds of people overnight when some Verizon executive decided that they're going to oh, cut yeah, all the adult yeah. content from the website. And the thing that I love about email is that if you look at the top 10 email clients – it's the top market share is 28%. Nobody controls this. Gmail, the Gmail and Apple phone dominate, but they don't control it. The thing is that there's no, there's no governing body, which is a huge advantage to people who, um, that, like that, that's an advantage in the sense that these decentralized networks have an opportunity where there's no executive in Mountain View or New York or or anywhere that can decide to make my site yeah, not exist like, You know, because I will have that email. And like Substack, they're terrific. They're new. If they were to go under, I would still have that damn email list and I could do something with that, you know? This is the critical thing is folks own your own domain name, use your own domain name, don't use anybody else's domain name, own your own mailing list and always be able to export Mm -hmm. that information if you can't find a different provider. And all the good email list providers and all the companies let you export the lists whenever you want. And and that's the key thing. Um, Well, I love love that email has has won the day. I think that's beyond uh, data journalism. I think that's that's the takeaway message. Here's a fun fact that I learned while starting my email business. Did you know that Microsoft Outlook, older versions of it, you know, if you send an HTML document to Gmail, it's gonna be like, ah, yes a thing I should register like a website. If you sent an HTML document to Apple's mail, they'll say, ah, yes, HTML, (laughs) a website way of rendering things. If you send it to Outlook, at least in the older versions, they would say, oh, HTML. We should open this in an instance of Word and then render it. And then it explodes, like, and so so the idea is that if you want something to look consistent, you actually have to put in design work to make it dumber. It's gotta be, it's gotta be using one syllable words of of coding, so to speak. You can't do something too flashy in it. And I do, I do admire that because the idea is that there's no, um, nobody's going to come around and take over that market. And you can, like, every, you can ask somebody to install your app. That's fine. Good luck trying to get people to install your app. Every goddamn phone in the world comes. Yeah, that's the thing. There's no, there's no problem with uh, an installed base. It's just reaching those people. It has monthly active users of the whole <laughs> The idea is like there's no, like it's hey, fine. Hey, except and the so, kids. You're now an old man because the kids don't do the email. They do the messaging and the WhatsApp. Walt, thank you for sharing your story and your secrets um, with us all. Folks, you can find Walt Hickey at his day job at Insider at thisisinsider.com. You can find him at walthickey.com for his personal projects. And Numlock News has the easy-to-remember domain, numlock.news, where you can subscribe and maybe give him a few bucks to get that premium content. Walt, thank you so much for joining me. Glenn, it's so good to talk to you. I mean, like I've been a big fan of yours for a long time on, on this messaging service called Twitter. I don't know if your fans are. Please don't are follow on, me on Twitter. Yeah. It's a terrible it's, idea. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, just such a big fan of your work and it was really just a terrific opportunity to come on. Oh, here, thank, so you. thank you so much. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been The New Disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert. Audio lives at SoundCloud and the site runs on Squarespace. This episode was hosted by me, Glenn Fleischman. You can help support this podcast and fund the production of more episodes by visiting newdisrupt.org support and find out about monthly and yearly membership options that include access to a private discussion forum for listeners, a fancy enamel pin, and being thanked on an episode. 
This episode copyright 2018, a periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask you don't offer it for sale. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.